So in study nine in our Understanding Paul series, we are continuing with the theme of what Paul says about living the Christian life. In study eight, uh, part one, we saw how Paul believed that the key to success in the spreading of the gospel was the conduct of the Christians themselves. And this meant that they needed to change their thinking, to change their lifestyles, and to change their attitudes towards one another. Writing to the Ephesians, Paul says that living the Christian life means being, and I quote, children of the light. And then he goes on to explain the implications of that for our lifestyles. So in Ephesians 5, 6, you might want to turn to Ephesians 5 because we're going to go through a few of these verses here. I'm using the original NIV, so it might not be quite what you have in front of you, uh, but I'm sure you'll follow that anyway, and I know some of you use other uh, versions as well, so that's fine. The first thing that it means for our lifestyles is this, that we are to behave in a way that is moral and upright. Living as children of the light means behaving in a way that is moral and upright. And so Paul warns believers not to be deceived by what he calls, quote, empty words, Ephesians 5 and verse 6. Do not be deceived by empty words. And by that he means the words of a world that is in darkness, as opposed to a world that is in light, in other words, the kingdom of God, that say that behaving in immoral ways doesn't matter. It's just natural. That is the wisdom of the darkness. But you are not to be involved in that kind of immorality. You're not to get involved even with those who behave in the sort of immoral ways that Paul mentions in his letters. In verse 7 he says, and I quote, do not be partners with them. Do not be partners with them. Otherwise, it's clear what's going to happen, isn't it? We're going to get sucked back, if we're not very careful, sucked back into a sinful, impure lifestyle. And of course, in a way, that was much easier that that might happen in Paul's time than it perhaps is today because of the way that society was structured. Instead, and here I go to Romans 13.13, 13, and uh, you'll remember that I do try to list all the references that I've made on the outlines, because uh, I know I throw a lot of verses out at you. This is so you can take them home and, and study them, go through them again at your leisure if you wish. Romans 13.13, 13, he says that Christians are to, quote, behave decently as in the daytime. So the daytime, of course, is another reference to living in the light and being children of the light. Behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Now, they used to live like this before they came to Christ. This was a good description of their lifestyles before they came to Christ. They used to live like this, but no longer, verse 8, quote, for you were once darkness, 
But now you are light in the Lord. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So for Paul, this means that as Christians, we can now, verse 8, quote, live as children of the light. Because Christ is shining in us, Christ is shining through us, and Christ is shining out from us. And this produces what he calls in verse 9, and I quote, fruit of the light. This produces fruit of the light, such as, quote, goodness. And the Greek word that Paul uses means showing generosity of spirit. That's what goodness means in the Greek. Showing generosity of spirit. In a society, of course, where people live mainly for themselves. The next fruit he mentions is righteousness. Righteousness, by that he means doing what's right in a society that doesn't do what's right. Doing what's right in a society that doesn't do what's right. And thirdly, he mentions the word truth, which means more than grasping a theological or doctrinal truth, but actually acting upon it, actually acting upon it in society. It's not enough to know about it, it's to be put into practice. That's what he means by truth. And in verse 10 he says we must, quote, find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord and, obviously, live our lives accordingly. And doing that, we'll live as children of the light because we will behave in a way that is moral and upright. So that's the first thing that he identifies that it means to live as children of the light. Now the second thing that living as children of the light means is this. It means being agents of change and healing in society. Agents of change and healing in society. In verse 11, Paul tells us to, quote, have nothing to do, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Verse 11. And as these evils are laid bare by Christians standing up for what's right, things can be changed and society can be healed. So we're to be agents of change and healing in society by standing up for what is right. Thirdly, living as children of the light means being wise. Being wise in our lifestyles. It means taking the chances we get to speak for God to those in darkness. It means coming to see things from God's perspective rather than from the darkness point of view. And in verses 15 to 17, Paul says, and I quote, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. 
Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Then in Colossians 4, 5-6, he says, in similar vein, quote, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So being wise in our lifestyle, seeing things from God's perspective, not from the world's perspective. That is wisdom. Paul knows that to be successful in living as children of the light is not possible, humanly speaking. We all struggle in these areas. Well, I do anyway, and I think most of the people would say, yeah, Ray, I agree with that, so do I. So I'm glad I'm not alone in that. Therefore, what does Paul do? He goes on to encourage believers to be continually empowered by God's Spirit. God's Spirit, he's saying, will empower us to live properly as children of the light. So that these three principles that we've just studied will happen in our living. Be empowered by God's Spirit. God's Spirit, unlike alcohol, stimulates and enlivens. Alcohol does the opposite. Alcohol deadens and stupefies. It deadens and stupefies. And so therefore, in verse 18, he says, quote, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So he's saying, don't live as the world lives, live as children of the light. And God has not just left you on your own to do that, he will empower you by his Spirit, as you yourselves are filled with the Spirit. Keep on being filled, is what the verb actually means. It's not a one-off thing, it's a continuous process, more of a daily thing, if you like. We need to be filled with God's Spirit daily, that we may be empowered to live as children in the light in a world and culture of darkness. That's basically what it comes down to. So that's what it means to live as children of the light. Now in Ephesians, we come on to instructions for Christian households. Paul goes on now to give instructions about how wives and husbands... Parents and children, slaves and masters, should conduct themselves as Christians. As Christians. Now notice this particularly before we go any further. Paul nowhere suggests that women are inferior to men. Nowhere. Nor does he expect non-Christian households to adopt the principles that he lays down here for Christian homes to follow. Now these instructions here actually provide some good examples of Christians being accommodating to the prevailing culture while at the same time being an example and challenge to society. We've talked about this in past studies. 
Now, in Ephesians 5, 21 through to 6, verse 9, Paul affirms and he develops the instructions he previously gave to the Colossians in 3.18 to 4.1 of Colossians. So he's affirming and developing. He wrote Ephesians after he'd written Colossians. And you remember that Ephesians was probably written more as a circular letter to go round the churches than aimed at a specific church. So you see, he wants people to know. He wants all of them in all the churches to receive these instructions. Because remember what's at the bottom of this. How you live your lives is going to affect the effective spread of the gospel. Christ is returning soon. What is the most important thing to do? Spread the gospel. Okay, so that's got to be our key project, is basically what he's saying in the church. And it's good to bear that in mind when we're looking at Paul's letters. Now, interestingly, these sections in Ephesians are prefaced by these words. Look at verse 21. This is really, really important. And he says this, quote, Submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this is the basic principle that underpins all these instructions that are now going to come up. So he starts, if you like, with the most important thing. And it's to grasp this principle of submission. Not one lot submitting to another lot, but of submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Paul goes on to show how in each of the relationships that he lists, that each participant in that relationship should adopt a conciliatory approach. A conciliatory approach, as this will contribute to the success and harmony of that relationship. So, Paul tells wives, and I quote, from 22 to 24 of chapter 5, and you'll also find something similar in Colossians 3.18. Quote, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, interestingly, in each of the three cases, in each of the three sets of instructions, Paul addresses the so-called submissive party first. Notice that. He addresses the submissive party first. So the wives and the children and the slaves are the first people that he addresses in the two of the partnership. Why does he do that? He does that for a specific reason. And he does it to stress liberation and freedom. He does it to stress the liberation and freedom that has been brought to them by the gospel. These groups have been liberated and freed by the gospel. Because you see, in both pagan and Roman Hellenistic, that's Greek society, wives in particular were downgraded. And Paul is having none of that. 
They are downgraded. But in Christ, you see, a revolutionary change had occurred. Male and female are now equal. This was totally radical. This was not the everyday experience. Galatians 3.28, we know it so well, but we forget it so often. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now the impact of this on the surrounding culture of the day among friends and neighbours of Christians and the authorities was huge. Because they were now saying, men and women are equal. In the kingdom of God, they're equal. And this was causing all sorts of ructions in society. And it resulted in Christians being viewed with suspicion and alarm as they rejoiced in this new truth that we're all one in Christ. There is no male and female. And Paul is keen to avoid this, which is one reason why he instructs wives to be submissive. He's basically saying to them, we may be equal in the kingdom of God, but we have to live in the kingdom of this world. So please be gracious and understand the importance of this. And he's talking to the Christians of that time, that culture. Another reason for him requesting women, the wives to be submissive is this, that as Colossians 3.18 puts it, it is, quote, fitting in the Lord. Fitting in the Lord. For Paul, the Lord has ordered human society to function in this particular way. Otherwise, it will disintegrate. Therefore, he says, the wife is showing the lordship of Christ in her life by submitting to what Christ has ordained. And again, in Ephesians 5.21, you, you've got that phrase, out of reverence for Christ. They mean similar things. So by submitting to her husband, her relationship with him reflects that of the church with Christ. Now let's get something else very clear that people forget and misunderstand. Submitting does not imply that she is subjecting herself to servile and menial bondage. It does not mean that. Although it's been misunderstood to mean that. And we all know examples of that happening. Indeed, here's another interesting thing. The word obey appears nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible with respect to wives. It never says obey. Although it does appear with respect to children and slaves. But not with wives. People overlook all these things. Submission, you see, we often get the wrong understanding of what the word means. Submission is to do with mutual love and respect. Not slavish obedience or subjection. Everything in the marriage should be sorted out mutually and in love. But where there is deadlock, the husband has the awesome responsibility before God of making the final decision and of answering to God for it. That is what Paul is saying. Now in Ephesians 5, 25-33... 
Paul teaches that Christian marriage between a man and his bride is the most precious relationship in life. It is as precious as that between Christ and his bride, the church. Now here's something else to notice and not to forget. This was not the view of marriage in society at the time of Paul. This was not the view of marriage in society at the time of Paul. What Paul is saying here is radically different. It is society challenging and society shaking. You see, for the Jews, a woman was not even a person. A woman was a thing that could be disposed of at will. That was the Jewish attitude to women. In Greek culture, prostitution was rife. A husband expected his wife to run his home and care for his legitimate children, but went elsewhere for sexual pleasure and companionship. And in Roman society, adultery was commonplace. Indeed, marriage as an institution was on the verge of complete breakdown in Roman society. Wives were not treated with respect, let alone with love, They didn't even get respect. By contrast, can you see how massive this contrast was? Paul was calling Christian men and women to a new purity, to a new commitment and fellowship in married life. The very opposite of what was happening in society. It's impossible to overestimate the benefits that Christian marriage brought to women in particular. It raised them to the status of equality. Now you see, the thrust of this passage is not who's in control. The thrust of this passage is love. It draws a parallel between the love of Christ for his church and the love of a husband for his wife. Using Christ's relationship with the church as a model, Paul identifies four key elements to the love that a Christian husband must give to his wife. Firstly, it must be sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Quote from verse 27. Husbands... Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, Christ loved the church not so that the church would do things for him, but rather that he might do things for the church. You see the parallel? Following Christ's example... Husbands are not to love their wives for what they can get out of them, but rather for what they can give to them. In other words, the love that's required of a husband for his wife is selfless, rather than selfish. Totally going against the culture of the day. A love that puts her first 
in all things and being prepared to make sacrifices to preserve the marriage. You contrast that with what the Jews were saying, what the Greeks were saying, what the Romans were saying. So, sacrificial love. The second key element required of the Christian husband is it must be an expressive love. An expressive love. By sacrificing himself on the cross, Jesus expressed his love for the church. In the same way, husbands are to express their love for their wives by their words and actions. Not just simply something one says, it's something one does, it's something one lives out. Wives are to be cherished. Wives are to be cherished. Expressive love. Thirdly, it must be a caring love. Quote from 5.29 and 33. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. And each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a pretty list of high standards here. And I'm standing here thinking, wow, how am I going to do this? Just as Christ cares for his body, the church, so husbands must care for their wives as much as they look after their own body. Caring love. Number four, it must be a unifying and unbreakable love. Quote from 31 and 32, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. You see, Christ is united with his church. There's an unbreakable bond between them. Nothing is going to break Christ's love for his church. In the same way, husbands and wives should become one, not just in the flesh, but also in a deep love that neither would think of separating from. Such a bond of love causes the husband to leave his family and set up his own household because he has found someone with whom he feels totally at one and to whom he is happy to stay committed for the rest of his life. A unifying and unbreakable love is required. Now, a visible evidence of the rule of Christ in a husband's life is that he does love his wife in those ways described, rather than following the ways of the prevailing culture. So you see, most of the men in the churches had behaved before they became Christians in the ways that the Jews or the Greeks or the Romans were talking about and the way they followed their lives. This was to change. They were not any longer to follow the ways of the prevailing culture. 
Now, because they were living in a patriarchal society, Paul stops short of telling husbands to submit to their wives. However, this mutual submission is actually stated in Ephesians 5.21. Remember, that's where we started. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's implied, mutual submission is implied throughout Paul's instructions to husbands. Writing to the Colossians in 3.19, Paul commands, quote, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. See, this often happened in society. Husbands were harsh, not loving towards their wives. A husband does not have the right to expect submission from his wife if he does not love her. But when she sees his love, Ephesians 5.33, quote, the wife must respect her husband, part of which is submitting and responding to him. Husbands are warned not to set the standards they expect from their wives too high. Otherwise, they may become embittered when they don't live up to them, resulting in the relationship being destroyed. So when we think of what society was like, we see how revolutionary this teaching was and why it was being carried out in this particular way. It was all to do with the spreading of the gospel in society. Paul was not out to cause social revolution. Paul was out to spread the gospel. And therefore, as we've said, these are why he gave these particular instructions. Because we have to live in the kingdom of the world. So and then he moves on to children and parents. And he lays down how the children-parent relationship should work. And again, the submission principle applies. Look at Ephesians 6.1. Quote, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Colossians 3.20 Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So you see, here we've got the obey for the children. We didn't have it for the wise. Because submission isn't about obedience. Paul's saying that obeying their parents is one way that children can show their love for God and his lordship in their lives. It's also the natural and the right thing to do so that there is harmony in the home. By saying that they are to be obedient, quote, in everything, Paul is implying that parents will never ask them to do anything that contravenes God's laws or causes the children to be abused. Paul also reminds children of the fifth commandment, which instructs them to, quote, honour, Ephesians 6, verse 2, honour your father and mother. This means that children are required to do more than just obey. They must also show them respect and love, care for them as they grow older, seek to honour them by the way they live their lives. Children must care for parents and vice versa. 
And writing to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, quote, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Pretty strong words. But keeping the family together, the family looking after its members, it's an important principle. Paul then addresses fathers. Because in those days, the father had supreme authority over the family. So much so, that a baby born into a Roman family would be laid before the father. If he picked it up, it meant he was accepting it into the home. If he didn't pick it up, he was saying it could be sold, given away, or left to die. So that was the system. That's what was happening in Roman families in Paul's day. So he addresses fathers because they've got supreme authority over the family in society. Paul tells them, and I quote from Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Paul knew that children need to be trained, nurtured, and disciplined in order to become responsible adults. And as he wrote these words, he may well have had in mind various fathers in the Old Testament who'd failed to do this properly, with tragic results. Two examples, Eli with Hophni and Phinehas, and David with Absalom. Fathers must also encourage their children rather than, the word is, exasperate or embitter them. By means of, for example, how you can embitter or exasperate your children, by means of endless criticism, showing favouritism, not keeping promises, or disciplining them in a harsh way which crushes them. This is not to happen. This is what Paul is saying to Christian fathers. Thirdly, Paul addresses the issue of slaves and masters. Now it's estimated that at Paul's, in Paul's day there was something like 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million slaves. Now, although the New Testament nowhere specifically condemns the practice of slavery, the thrust of the gospel is clearly against it. Paul did not condone the slave system, saying that in the kingdom of God, and we go back to Galatians 3.28, don't we? There is neither slave nor free. There is neither slave nor free. Not so in the kingdom of the world. So can you see how there's this difficulty between the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of the world? Now, he's saying, 
We may believe these things in the kingdom of, the, of, of, the, of light, in the kingdom of God, and that is the truth before God. But we have to work this out in the world. And we have to work it out in such a way that the world is prepared to listen to us. And we are an example to the world. Not an agent for revolution in the world. There wasn't time for revolution. As far as Paul was concerned, Christ was coming back imminently. So the business that they needed to attend to was not changing society, but changing lives. That's what it was about. Paul did not condone the slave system, as we've seen in Galatians 3.28. You see, slavery was a political matter, and therefore it could only be ended through the political system. And as I keep banging on about, Paul's mission was to preach the gospel, not to overthrow the institutions of the Roman Empire. Although, of course, it could be reasonably said that Paul's ministry contributed to the eventual end of slavery and the focus on freedom. The instructions that Paul sets out in his letters affecting slaves and masters were not given by way of condoning the system of slavery, but as a practical means of dealing with the realities of society at that time. Just as he'd asked wives to be gracious and to submit in the way that he described. The principles behind these instructions can also be employed to applied, I should say, to employees and employers today. Although Paul didn't have that in mind, he was about the slaves and masters. Remember, Paul was not writing for 21st century Christians. He was writing for the church in his day. You must always remember that as we get into awful problems. Christian slaves were to carry out the tasks that their masters asked them to do, respecting them with due deference. So, Colossians 3.22 and Ephesians 6.5, quote, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, with respect and fear. They are to seek to please their masters, not to give them any back chat or steal from them, but to prove themselves to be trustworthy. In his pastoral instructions to Titus, chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, Paul says, and I quote, teach slaves to try to please them, in other words, their masters, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show they can be fully trusted. Now, clearly, all this was going on. Slaves were doing this, probably habitually. But Christian slaves were not to behave in this way. They are not to work properly just when being watched in order to impress their masters. They are to do their very best working wholeheartedly at all times because really they are serving the Lord. And through their work, God will either reward them or take them to task accordingly. Colossians 3, 23-25, quoting from there, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. See, behaving in all these ways, wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves and masters, is all to be done out of reverence for the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Now, slaves who are lucky enough to have masters who are Christians, such as Philemon, remember Philemon's household contained many slaves, one of whom was Onesimus, if you think back to study three, they should not seek to take advantage of that situation and think, oh, well, you know, my master's a, a Christian, he's not going to get angry with me if I do this and that. No, 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 they were not to seek to take advantage but rather to work even harder for them. 1 Timothy 6, 2, quote, Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. And then, Paul does something really extraordinary. He addresses Christian masters. This is completely unprecedented. That masters should be regarded as having any binding responsibilities towards their slaves was a radical and completely new idea. Nobody suggested that masters had responsibilities to their slaves. They could do what they like with them. They're not even human. They're not even people. They're slaves. This is the attitude in society. Now Paul outlines what these responsibilities are. Just as Paul expects slaves to do their best for their masters, likewise it is the responsibility of Christian masters to do their best for their slaves and not to exploit them. Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, quote, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Nor must they use fear as a weapon against their slaves. Same verse, quote, Do not threaten them. Instead, Paul presents a much better way of motivating them, which was to pay slaves fair wages and to treat them justly. Colossians 4.1 Quote, Provide your slaves with what is right and fair. What is right and fair. And in all their treatment of their slaves, Paul says, masters are to bear in mind the fact that they too have a master. They too have a master in heaven to whom they are ultimately responsible, and that he is no respecter of status. Judging each person's sins and rewarding their obedience in just the same way, no matter who they are. Quoting from Ephesians 6, 9, Since you know that he who is both there, that's the slave's master, and yours is in heaven, and there is no favouritism with him. There is no favouritism with him. So, 
is clear from what we've studied this evening that for Paul, the problems caused by the fracturing that he saw in the home and in society could only be solved and healed by people responding to the gospel and becoming new creations and then submitting themselves both to Christ and to each other. Okay, Paul then goes on to give some further instructions regarding men and women. He's given quite a lot already, hasn't he? But uh, there's more. Writing in his pastoral letter to Titus, and you remember he'd given Titus the responsibility of organising and pastoring the fledgling church in Crete, and we looked at that back in study two. And when he's writing to him, he affirms and compliments these instructions that he'd given in Colossians and Ephesians. And he says to Titus that the older men in the church are to be taught to be, quote, temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. That's chapter 2, verse 2 of Titus. Unlike the stereotypical Cretan man, they were to be responsible and they were to be sensible. They were to be moral and spiritual examples to the younger men in the church who should be encouraged to be, quote, self-controlled, verse 6. So it seems that the older men had more a problem of of wisdom and uh, the younger men of self-control. The same moral standards are to apply to the older women. Look at chapter 2 of Titus, verse 3. Quote, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So again, they were to be different from the Cretan women, who reputedly spent their time drinking and gossiping. And they were to be examples to the younger women, urging them, quote, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. And writing in his first pastoral letter to Timothy who, if you remember, was looking after the church in Ephesus at the time, Paul also expresses his wishes concerning how women should dress. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 9-10. Quote, I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. End of quote. Now, (laughs) at first sight, and unfortunately my experience is the only sight some women give to it, at first sight this might seem to be rather presumptuous on Paul's part, who was he to dictate how women should adorn themselves, etc. But, you see, there was an important question behind it. 
and a situation which had given rise to it. The question was, what constitutes true beauty? What is true beauty? And Paul, you see, did not want the women in the church in Ephesus, remember that's where he's writing to, but it happened in other cities, he didn't want them to get caught up in the local glamour stakes. The local glamour stakes that took place in the city. Expensive hairdos, costly clothing, top-of-the-range jewellery, and other sound signs of outlandish luxury were used to get noticed and admired and acquire celebrity status. That's what it was all about. Women competing with each other for this sort of celebrity status within the city. Paul draws a contrast between such artificial glamour as espoused by the world and the radiance of a holy life which is truly beautiful to God. So Paul encourages the women to focus on developing their Christian character and doing good works so that the beauty of Christ might shine out through them rather than being preoccupied with how they look. Now, please listen. Paul does not forbid them to wear nice clothes or to have their hair done or to wear jewellery. I've heard this so many times down the years. Is not what he's saying. What he's doing, he's asking for a balance. He's asking for a balance and modesty in the way they dress and present themselves in complete contrast to the over-the-top and outrageous displays characteristic of these glamour stakes. Paul doesn't just express his wishes for women, but for men also. He wants all Christian men, not just those in Ephesus, to live holy lives. And to devote themselves to prayer. Then not to get angry, or to be argumentative just for the sake of it. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 8. Quote, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Men are to make sure, therefore, that they are in a right relationship with God and with their fellow believers. Now, notice this, really, really important. Paul gives these and all the other instructions to believers that we've gone through this evening because he is very concerned that we live the Christian life with integrity, quote, from Titus 2, 5 and 8, so that no one will malign the word of God. That's what all this is about. So that no one will malign the word of God. That's the key phrase to grab hold of. And it underpins all of Paul's teaching on living the Christian life. And he goes on, those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. That they have nothing bad to say about us. Do you see how the conduct of the Christians in the society in which they lived was key to how the word of God was accepted, how the gospel was heard. 
absolutely key. And Paul's desire is that the way that all Christians, not just slaves, live their lives, quote Titus 2.10, will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. So they must, quote, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, Romans 12.17. You see, Paul wants the world to see something. He wants the world to see that living the Christian life is radically different and that the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives for the better. That's what he wants the world to see in the conduct of the Christians. Now, living the Christian life also means standing firm. Standing firm in the face of opposition and persecution. Paul warns believers that as we live the Christian life, we must be prepared to endure opposition and even persecution for the sake of the gospel just as he did. See 1 Corinthians 4.12, Galatians 5.11, 1 Thessalonians 3.4 and 7. In those days, such hostility came from various sources, including at the hands of those Jews who did not accept that Jesus was the Messiah. We talked about that in study one. Hostility came from members of other religions who saw the growth of Christianity as a threat to their way of life. Great example of this in Ephesus, Acts 19, 23-41. And we looked at that in study two. And another source of hostility came from the cult of emperor worship which permeated every aspect of society. Now this cult of emperor worship was introduced in order to bind together the diverse cultures and beliefs of the many tribes and peoples conquered by the Romans, giving them all something in common, giving them all a focus for worship and veneration which was shared throughout the empire. And one of the titles used of the emperor was Lord. Lord. So to declare that Jesus was Lord, as the message of the gospel did, was to challenge the emperor himself. It was an act of treason. And in Thessalonica we see this happening, where we see Paul's teaching about Christ causing a riot with believers being dragged before the city officials, accused of, quote, from Acts 17.7, defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. See, this was a fact of everyday life, and we talked about that in study two. The clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caesar would lead ultimately to the violent Roman persecution of Christians, beginning with Emperor Nero, who ruled from AD 54 to 68. Therefore, on several occasions in his letters, Paul urges believers to stand firm in their faith and to face courageously those who stand against them. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, quote, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. 
Be strong. Philippians 1, 28-29, quote, Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And Colossians 1.23 says something similar. The Thessalonians were commended by Paul because they were, quote, standing firm in the Lord. So much so that, quoting again, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, 2 Thessalonians 1, 4. So the Thessalonian church was really sort of held up by Paul as an example of what the rest of the churches needed to be doing. And in his first letter to Timothy, Paul encourages him to, quote, fight the good fight of faith and to, quote, fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regards to the faith. That's 1 Timothy 6.12 and 1 Timothy 1.18-19. I love that phrase, suffered shipwreck. I think that's just such an evocative phrase to describe what's happened in these persons' lives who have not stood firm. They've come aground on the rocks and their whole lives have just been smashed into pieces. And in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul boldly states, quote, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So in other words, he's saying to the Christians of those days, get ready, stand firm. He urges all of them to respond in a positive way to these times of suffering, hardship and persecution, just as he did. Paul encourages us, quote, to glory in our sufferings and points out the benefits that standing firm through the storm bring to the believer, quoting from Romans 5, 3 to 4. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And echoing the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul says in Romans 12, 14, that the Christian's response to the people who mistreat them is to, quote, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Any vengeance is to be left to God. Romans 12, 17 and 19 to 21, we read these words, quote, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, be over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That burning coals on his head is a dramatic picture, meaning, probably, to cause their enemy to come to repentance. And it's actually a quote, interestingly, from Proverbs 25, 21-22. So it wasn't first said by Jesus, it was said in the book of Proverbs. So living the Christian life means standing firm in the face of persecution. It also involves 
obeying the authorities. Now, it was never Paul's deliberate intention to provoke the Roman authorities, although he surely knew that the gospel of the kingdom of God was inevitably set on a collision course with the imperial power, the kingdom of Caesar. In fact, in his letter to the Christians in Rome, who were living right there in the very heart of the empire, Paul exhorts believers to submit themselves to their rulers. Chapter 13, 1, quote, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Paul certainly believed that there must be law and order and justice in society. And that's what the authorities were put in place to maintain. So, chapter 13, verse 3, quote, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. People who do wrong, criminals, are the only people who need to be afraid of the authorities, is what he's saying. In fact, the authorities have a responsibility. They have a responsibility to, to work for the good of society as a whole. And in this respect, they are, quote, God's servant for your good. And also, quote, God's agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. That's Romans 13, verse 4. And they are to be supported in their responsibilities through the tax system and given respect and honour as they carry out their duties to benefit society as a whole. So in verse 7 we read, quote, If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. And given all this, obeying the authorities is part of living the Christian life. So verse 5, quote, Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. In other words, it's the right thing to do. Paul tells Titus, chapter 3, 1, quote, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. However, it's Paul's statement in verse 1 that's proved to be contentious. And there he says, quote, There is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Which, of course, makes us ask the question, does it not? Did Paul really believe that all authorities, however horrendous, are established by God? Or, actually, as seems more likely, he was just meaning the current Roman rulers. Because, you see, as Christ's return was imminent, as far as Paul was concerned, there wouldn't be any other rulers, would there? So, it seems much more likely he's just talking about the current Roman rulers, that God's put in place this particular situation at the moment. Certainly, you see, Paul didn't want anything to disrupt what was called the Pax Romana. And the Pax Romana was the peace that the Romans enforced in the countries they ruled. May or may not approve of what the Romans did or how they did it, but there was peace throughout the Roman Empire. And that allowed the freedom of movement and the freedom of opportunity in a relatively stable society to preach and spread the gospel. 
throughout the length and breadth of the empire. So no wonder Paul wants everybody to not rock the boat and rebel against the authorities. We want this situation to continue. Why? What's Paul's bottom line? For the sake of the spread of the gospel. And writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2 verse 2, Paul urges prayer, quote, for kings and all those in authority in the hope that, quote, we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, another advantage of the status quo was that Greek was commonly spoken throughout the Roman world, which meant, do you see, that everywhere Paul preached, the gospel could be understood. You speak in Greek. Not to mention that he could communicate with all the believers in all the churches spread across the empire by means of his letters written in Greek. So, on the one hand, it seems that Paul wanted the ruling authorities, whom he saw as established by God, to maintain this current advantageous situation. He wants them to remain in power for the sake of the spread of the gospel and for the sake of the grounding of believers in the faith. While on the other hand, he knew that ultimately these same authorities would be responsible for persecuting them. Incurring the wrath of Rome was the inevitable consequence of preaching the truth of the gospel message, at the centre of which was the Lordship of Christ, before whom all people and powers would bow the knee. Remember Philippians 2, 9-11? We quote it often enough, don't we? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name do you see how critical this is getting the name above every name in a way that you see we don't understand it's saying you know that you you are defying the authorities the name above every name that at the name of Jesus get this every knee should bow at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth think through that a minute and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is this subversive or what? It's treasonable, but it's the gospel. Not Nero or any other emperor is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Every knee shall bow to him. And this, of course, in the end, was not a message that the Romans could afford to ignore, which is why those Christians whom Nero imprisoned for not acknowledging that he was Lord ended up by being tortured by him in the most horrific ways and even being used as scapegoats for the great fire of Rome in AD 64. And these actions were a foretaste. They were a foretaste of the increasing persecution that Christians would have to face for living the Christian life. 